0: As we go through 2 Corinthians, and we today are actually going to finish uh, the second letter to the church in Corinth. We began back in February of this year in 1 Corinthians, and so it's only taken us uh, almost all of 2023 to get through First and Second Corinthians. But praise the Lord, we made it together, and here we are. As we get ready to delve into this final chapter of 2 Corinthians, let me just remind you that Paul writes both of these letters to a group of people he knew very well. He had spent a a tremendous amount of time uh, with them, some 18 months as he was planning the church. And his feeling towards them, he really reflects upon this in his first letter in chapter uh, 4 of 1 Corinthians verse 15. He says this, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ... Yet you do not have many fathers, for in Christ I have begotten you through the gospel. And so his feeling about the Corinthians is they were like his kids spiritually. He loved them like that. He cared for them. He wasn't going to give up on them because he viewed them as his spiritual children. He had seen them come to know the Lord. And so as he gets word of all the issues that have now taken place in Corinth, uh, Paul writes to them in the first letter to talk to them about their, their giftings. They'd had tremendous gifts. In fact, the word in the Greek is the word uh, charisma. And you might notice the root word inside that is the word charis. It means grace. And so they've been given all these graces, all these gifts, not because they've done anything or they were so super awesome, but just because Jesus loved them enough to give them these giftings. And yet, as they had these gifts, what they lacked was maturity. They lacked love. And so they have... All these amazing gifts, but they do not love people. And what Paul wants to say in chapter 13, he spends time at 1 Corinthians saying, even though you've got all these gifts, if you don't have love, you're like a sounding, uh, gong or a, a banging brass. You're just a bunch of noisemakers, as all you guys are. But as he's writing to them, what he wants them to understand is they need to get right with the Lord. They need to correct these things that are happening inside the church. And so he writes essentially an open rebuke in 1 Corinthians. But as he gets to the and he's he's no doubt worried about how they're going to receive the letter. And, and in fact, when he gets word of how they received it, he was probably crushed, heartbroken, because many of them didn't listen to what he had to write. Instead, they just turned the tables back on Paul, and they wanted to point the finger back to him. They They questioned his calling. They questioned his character. They questioned even his physical stature. You're just a little guy. We don't have to listen to you. And so they lash back out at the apostle paul and what we have in second corinthians is essentially their answer his answer to their uh answer to his first letter so that ought to be easy enough to remember but as we go through this second letter what he wants to make clear is this old life that they used to live what when he saw them begotten in the faith this was really the old man the grave clothes that they were to put off because as he mentions in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, maybe one of the most famous verses in all of this second letter, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so his desire for them was to put on their new clothes, to look like the new Christians that have been born into this life, and the old man should be passing away. And as he's writing this letter, it's important for us to remember Paul wasn't just trying to defend himself. It would have been easy to want to defend yourself if you're Paul. But what he was really doing is he was defending the truth of the Gospel. He wanted to make it perfectly clear that this is the the beauty of the Gospel that Jesus called sinners into a place of repentance and righteousness, not the righteous. In fact, by Jesus' own words in Luke chapter 5, as he was speaking to a bunch of self-righteous uh, indignant Pharisees, this is what he says in chapter 5, verse 31, I'll actually begin. Jesus answered and said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so for those that thought they had it all together, thought they were all right, Jesus says, you don't have any need of me, but those who are sick, those who are looking for help, they're the ones that really need me these are the ones that you send the physician the great physician after and the reality is for this church in Corinth they were very sick they had uh, deep needs for a doctor and this is Paul's desire is for them to to truly in the words uh, in my vernacular in the Brock Ashley version what he says here in chapter 13 to wrap it up is you better check yourself before you wreck yourself These Corinthians were about to wreck themselves in a major way, and so Paul's going to call them to the carpet to say, you need to check yourself at the door. Now, verse 1 of chapter 13, as he wraps up this letter, he says, This will be the third time I am coming to you, and by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word shall be established. Verse 2, I have told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time, and now being absent, I write to those who have sin before and to all the rest, that if I come again, I will not spare. And so as Paul begins this 13th chapter and wraps up the letter, he's going to again mention his third visit. Now I talked to you last week, there's lots of debates about, is this the second time Paul came, the third time Paul came, and we get ourselves all spun out with those details, and you miss the message, what Paul's trying to communicate. He actually goes back to verse uh or chapter 19 of Deuteronomy, verse 15. You guys love Deuteronomy, so you probably have this memorized. But for the rest of you, I'm going to read it. Here's what he, uh, Moses writes. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. But by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established." And so he's now speaking to the law that in the law of Moses, if you have an issue with someone and you believe they've committed a sin or a wrong, you have to have two or three witnesses to be able to corroborate that story. And so as the Corinthians have come after Paul, they don't have two or three legitimate witnesses to any of the things that they've thrown out. Any of these false teachers have thrown out against the Apostle Paul. But this time he's not speaking as if he were defending himself or even as an investigator into the issues that have taken place. He's actually speaking here as a judge. What Paul's saying is, I'm going to come, and I'm going to judge. I'm going to look at the witness accounts, and I'm going to make a determination about what's going on. And when I come, I am not going to spare, is what he says in verse 2. Now that seems pretty harsh, like Paul's getting ready to to jerk a knot in a few people's tails. But remember, just as a parent who's disciplining in love, this is what Paul wants to do. He's going to have to lay things and set it straight. They've questioned his calling And this, by the way, is a calling Paul received from God. No man told him he was called to go to the Gentiles. God said so in Acts chapter 9. He told him where to go, what to do. And so if they're questioning Paul and his calling, what they're really doing is they're doubting God. They're doubting God and God's decision-making, which is always a place where we need to really check ourselves. We need to question when we begin to question God and his character and his decision-making. And I would ask this. If you're going to question God's decision making, whose decision making do you really want to rely upon? I mean, you want to rely upon the news? You want to rely upon, I don't know, your family? Or how about yourself? Like, If you look at at your track record, are you really the decision maker? You want to be making the final decision on things. I've got 44 years in. As I look at my decision making, it is uh, subject at the very best. It is not Good, in fact, I could barely pick out what shirt i 'm going to wear this morning. I mean even that was hard for me to make a decision about and i 'm an engineer, so I just have different colors of flannel, you know so i can 't even decide what flannel i 'm going to pick out. This is the issue right we 're not good decision makers we struggle with making decisions. Why on earth would we doubt God and his decision making now Paul continues here in verse three he says, "Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me." who is not weak toward you but mighty in you for though he was crucified in weakness yet he lives by the power of god for we also are weak in him but we shall live by we shall live with him by the power of god toward you as jesus was nailed to the cross the people that gathered around no doubt thought that this is weakness as he was nailed there he was beaten shamed spat upon the crown of thorns pressed into his skull the the entire audience looked and thought here is the king of the Jews really this is laughable this person is so very weak and yet he claimed to be God in the flesh but what we realize and Jesus actually speaking about this in John chapter 10 regarding his life uh, John chapter 10 I'll pick up in verse 17 Jesus says therefore My Father loves me because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. And so what the world viewed as weakness, what Jesus wanted to say is, I am very much in control. And then three days later, as he rose again and hundreds of witnesses were able to see him, and now 2,000 years later, he continues to shake the world up. It's obvious he was very much in control. He was uh, all-powerful. In fact, he was not weak, he was meek. And the very definition of meekness is power under control. And as they looked at the life of the Apostle Paul, all these false teachers, all these haters could see in him was weakness. They saw a man who was physically debilitated, who wasn't the greatest public speaker, and they said, he's so very weak. And what Paul is trying to communicate is, you've missed the boat. I wasn't weak, I was meek. I I was power under control because Christ was in me. The very power of God dwelt in me, and yet I was living a life that was controlled unlike you Corinthians. Now, these false teachers, they believed to have some kind of power because they were great at public speaking, and yet Paul's saying here is that it's false. You're believing in something that is, in fact, weak. It's all upside down. Now, verse 5, he continues by saying, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Now, they've spent all this time examining and questioning Paul, He's now turned the tables and he says this, you need to be examining yourselves. And as you examine yourself, ask this question, am I saved? Well, that's a sobering question to ask on a Sunday morning. Am I saved? Am I truly saved? There are far too many people that sit in churches just like this on Sunday mornings that because they prayed a prayer when they were a little kid or at a church camp, they had an emotional experience. They want to cling to that and say, I've got eternal security. Now their life looks like hell lived out after that point. There, there's no evidence, there's no proof of an actual salvation. And the reality is we have to ask ourselves, are we saved? Jesus speaking to this point, he says in Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 21, regarding those who believe themselves to be saved, he says in verse 21 of chapter 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Can you imagine? And this is those who claim to be prophesying and casting out demons. You know who that is, right? That's that's the church leaders. that's That's the pastors and the preachers and those that thought they were so righteous that they had it down, and yet what they lacked was a personal relationship with Jesus. This is the warning. Paul continues here in this verse. He says, examine yourselves as to so whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Christ is in you? unless indeed you are disqualified. If the question is, am I saved? The the way we know is the follow-up to that, is Christ in you? Do you have Jesus living and dwelling, having his position in you from the inside out? And and if it's anything else you're relying upon, it's it's not good enough. It doesn't matter the position you hold in church or with a company or in a family. It's a one-on-one personal relationship. God has many children, he has no grandchildren. There's nobody that can get you into heaven other than you. It's a decision that we have to make. And there's no religious practice. It's not a matter of religion, this is a relationship. It's not a matter of theology, it's a matter of intimacy. Think about what Jesus just said, I didn't know you. The first time we see that phrase is Genesis, when Adam knew Eve, he's speaking of physical intimacy, the deepest relationship we can have. And before that creeps you all out, understand, we've perverted what it means. But the idea is to to know God at the deepest level, to have him know us at the deepest level. It's an intimate relationship we're to have with Jesus. Outside of that, it's not just knowing Jesus intellectually, it's do you know him personally? And if I know him personally, I have to question myself, am I spending time with him? the way I would expect any relationship to grow that is to be intimate in that way. Because just coming uh, once a week on a Sunday morning for an hour a few times a month, it's not enough. What relationship do you hope to maintain personally in an intimate setting that you can simply spend an, an hour once a week a few times a month with? There's no relationship that would work out in that way. And yet we expect that with Christ. And so the question is, do I know him? And is he living and dwelling, having his being within me? He says in verse 26, or verse 6, excuse me, but I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. And now I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, uh, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. And so this Question has come about now multiple times about being disqualified. You might wonder, like, what does that mean to be disqualified? There's really two groups of people that Paul is speaking to. In verse uh, 6 and 7 and even up into verse 5, the first group are those that are disqualified because they didn't actually know Jesus. They didn't actually have a relationship uh, with Christ Jesus. And eventually my slides will catch up. So there are those that believe that they're saved because of whatever experience they might have, and yet they are are not. And so for those, it's a dangerous spot to be in for sure. And then there's this second group that he's talking about. These are those who are disqualified, who are saved, and yet they're going to miss out on eternal rewards. Now, as a kid growing up, I, I didn't ever understand this concept. That Jesus, as we are saved, welcome into the family. That it's not just uh, the relationship doesn't end there. That he also intends for us to be rewarded for our work, for our time here on earth. And so we're going to stand before the king, before the Bema seat. That's that judgment seat where our awards are handed out. And as the awards are handed out, it's going to be based upon how I did in this life. Now... Uh, many of you say, look, I don't want no rewards. I just want Jesus for all of eternity. I'm not in it for the rewards. For all of you, that's fine and good. You're more holy than me. If Jesus is going to give me rewards, I'm taking them. I'm going to stand there, and if he's handing them out, I want a big old pile. I want it so high, you can't even see. Where's Pastor Brock? He's somewhere behind that pile of awards back there. That's where I want to be at. Right? If we're being truthful, we want to accept His rewards, especially as we consider what this life looks like with all the things that we have to to give up. Now, all this to say, regardless of Paul's message, what he wants to make clear is what his character has been as he's related to them, as he's been in community with them. And what he's told them here is that you've known the right thing to do, now the charge is for you to go and do it. Right? You've known the right thing, now go and do the right thing. It's just that simple. And as we go and we do the right thing, when we're in a right relationship with Jesus, it should look like fruit. There should be fruit in our lives as we grow in a relationship with Him. What is the fruit of the Spirit? But Galatians 5 says, love. This is the fruit. And when we bite into the fruit of the Spirit, it tastes like joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And so it tastes like this. This is the the flavors. But if I don't have love, if I don't taste any of those flavors in my life, it should be an indication to me that I've got a bigger problem, that I've got something going on. This is a symptom of a larger issue, and so I'm called to then go and deal with the actual symptom, which is in my relationship with Christ. Now, as we continue, he says here in verse 8, For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak, and you are strong. Paul is communicating that even if he is struggling in his life physically, he is happy if the church in Corinth is actually doing well. In other words, Paul's joy was not connected to his circumstances. Paul's circumstances didn't dictate how joyful he was or was not. In fact, if you look through your New Testament, the most joyful letter that Paul would write is the letter to the Philippians. It's covered from uh, chapter 1 to chapter 4 with joy. But do you realize where Paul was when he wrote that letter? Don't cheat and look at the slides ahead. But you cheaters. He was in prison. Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter. And so his circumstances didn't define his joy. It was It was in Christ. It was rooted and grounded in him. And so he is also saying he took great joy in knowing that they communicated the truth. We do nothing against the truth but for the truth. I'm communicating the truth with you and to you. And if that's the case, he doesn't have anything to worry about. If he's simply communicating the truth of the gospel, all these opinions and thoughts, they can be so elusive, and yet the truth is stable and known and consistent. There's a consistency when we just simply communicate the truth, and inside that, the truth is also freeing. Jesus wants to make perfectly clear in John chapter 14 where truth actually resides. This may be a verse that many of you remember. Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 6, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is only one place where truth can be found, and it is in the person and in a personal relationship. With Christ Jesus, this is where truth can be found. Now, inside of this, he says in John chapter eight, verse thirty out, beginning verse thirty-one. Jesus said to those who believed in him, "If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free." But as we desire to have freedom. In Christ, it is found in the person of Jesus. That the truth actually becomes this freeing experience. The chains come off because no longer am I shackled to my old flesh, to this old lifestyle. I can now be truly free for the first time. He continues in verse 10, Therefore, I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given Uh, me for edification and not for destruction. And so Paul here wants to communicate uh, life to them. He wants to see them built up. And this authority that he's been given has been given to him uh, by God. And as he's been given this authority, the reason for it isn't so that they can be destroyed. As they heard these words, no doubt they thought, Paul's just after us. He wants to be harsh and hard on us, but he wants them to be built up. Now, I didn't read the rest of verse 9, so I'll go back and read that, sorry. And this also, we pray, that you may be made complete. That is, the Apostle Paul's now two letters into this relationship with the Corinthians, and they've attacked him personally, they've attacked his character and his calling. Uh, notice with me how Paul responds. It's much different than what I would respond if you attacked my calling and my character. I'm going to be a lot more like the guy in the picture here. I'm looking to call down fire and smoke people, Lord. Let them have it. I mean, bring the fire upon them. They're questioning me. How dare they? And yet what I'm convicted by is here's Paul in verse 9 saying, and we pray for you. Verse 7, he says, now I pray to God that you do no evil. He was consistently praying for the church in Corinth. His desire was for them to be made perfect or the Word to be complete, but he was spending time in prayer for them. This is how Paul was able to, to think these wonderful thoughts about them and have joy over them. It's because he spent time in prayer praying over them. Regardless of the way I am made to feel, what I encourage you is to pray for people who hurt you. I know it's difficult. I know that that suggestion sounds almost... Uh, it's too hard to possibly bear it. And yet here's what I'll promise you. If you will commit to consistently praying for people who have done you wrong, who have hurt you, who are a total pain in your backside, if you pray for them, what I will promise you is uh, not that they will change. I can't promise that. But what I can promise is you will. Your heart will soften. Your heart will change. What I put up here on the screen, I've noticed this in my life to be true is that you cannot stay mad at someone you pray for consistently. If you pray for someone consistently, you cannot stay in a spot of anger towards them. This, by the way, is why I am constantly asking Angela to pray with me. I'm like, I am going to do something stupid at any minute that's probably going to upset her. So if I can have her pray with me, maybe, just maybe, she won't be able to stay mad at me. I know this to be true spiritually. And so Paul's not able to maintain any kind of anger. No doubt he's frustrated with them, but he can't be angry with them because he is consistently praying for these there in Corinth. Now on to verse 10. Therefore I write these things, being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. So Paul, as he's called by God to Corinth... His desire is for these letters to edify. That word means to build them up, not to see them destroyed, but to actually see them encouraged. And this is the reality about sin in our life. If we get so tangled up, it becomes like a part of us. And so as that sin is untangled and our life is untwisted and all these religious thoughts we thought were true or these things about god were maybe true as it gets untwisted it's painful because it's so often it involves dying it involves dying to myself and dying hurts it's it's being ripped apart and yet just like a precious metal that has to be heated up in order for the impurities to rise to the top so they can be scraped off only to be poured into the next vessel, and then, you know what I mean, heated up, impurities at the top, scraped off, poured into the next vessel, heated up. This is the Christian life. This is our life. We are constantly being pressured and heated up, and the impurities rise to the top, and we we have the pleasure of seeing those things scraped off, only to be poured into the next vessel. And that might sound harsh, and maybe a little too much to bear. And you may wonder, why would God do that? Like, why would we have to continually be heated up and impurities be brought up? Couldn't we, couldn't we just be okay? And here's the reason why. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. You, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He is reconciled. In the body of his flesh through death, to be to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. But God's desire is for us, as these impurities are scraped off and were presented some day when we draw our last breath to Jesus, is for us to be able to be presented holy, blameless, undefiled. Paul says earlier in this letter to be presented a chaste virgin before our groom. His desire is for us to be made holy as He is holy. He hasn't changed the standard of the expectation just because we don't think we can get there. But in Christ, through His death, through accepting His life for ours, we can be made holy as He continues to heat us up, refines us. Someday soon we will be presented undefiled before the King. Now as we conclude, verse 11 Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss, and all the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Paul loved these Corinthians. And because of his great love for them, he was never going to give up on him. He was going to continue to endure whatever they had to throw his way. He was going to endure it because of his great love for him. And he wraps up this letter, first of all, with an, an exhortation. He tells him, look, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, go and do these things. And if you do these things, at the end of verse 11, here's the effect. If you go and you're of good comfort and you're of one mind and you live in peace, the God of love and peace will be with you. What a beautiful promise. The God of love and peace will actually dwell and rule in your life. And as you accept this and the God of love and peace rules and dwells among you, then, verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, want to be very clear. There's some cultural things that happen in the Bible. Uh, the holy kiss, not exactly understood in our culture. Now, I would prefer to look at this as a good holy handshake, I'm good with that. So if you guys want to come into a relationship with me, I love a holy handshake or even a holy hug. And as we get to know each other, man, I'll give you a belt buckle to belt buckle holy hug. You try to lay on a holy kiss, it's going to be game over. But that said, the idea isn't just to reflect on the kiss. The idea is that we should be compelled to be around one another. That's what Paul's saying is is the God of peace dwells and has his life in us as the Spirit comes in into this body, we will have a desire to be around each other. There will be a desire to be in community, in fellowship with one another. For years in my life, I was dragged to church by my beautiful wife, and I did it mostly so she would not be angry with me. You're noticing a pattern here. But, But that's the reality. I didn't want her to be frustrated, so I would reluctantly go, but I never looked forward to it. And then Christ got a hold of my heart, you see. And then I'm excited. About what is the pastor going to talk about this week, maybe it was a hard chapter i'm like how I want to see if he fumbles over that or but i would but I was genuinely excited though to see people to see brothers and sisters in christ to to come into relationship, and so there's this excitement that happens when you're in community with one another, and as the Holy Spirit has his way with us, it will be an infectious piece of this fellowship. This will be the reason that people come and they stay and they stick. It's because of the spirit dwelling here in relationship with one another. I want to be a part of that thing. And so this idea of being excited to be around one another is what Paul is communicating to them. He says here in verse 13, all the saints greet you. That these Corinthians, I mean, remember they've come back up against Paul and no doubt they've wondered, is he mad at us? I mean, surely Paul's got to be mad, angry, upset. No, what he wants to communicate is, I'm giving you the whole wave on the way by. I'm so excited to greet you. I'm excited to see you. And this is vitally important because as we go and as we grow as a body, there are going to be folks on the periphery that aren't sure their spot or if they fit in. And the reality is they can think if they've missed any length of time that someone's going to be mad or disappointed or frustrated, or any number of things, it's important to know that they're greeted, that they're welcomed, that they know that they've got a place here, that they're not left alone and abandoned. That's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to get us out on the edge where we feel alone, and we feel not accepted, and then he can have his way with our minds, and he can pick us off. And as we come into relationship with Jesus, we need to let people know you are not abandoned. You are seen, you are known, you belong. It's not to say that sin is just excused. We want to make sure that as people are welcomed in, you come as you are, but don't stay as you were. Be changed by the Spirit and yet be welcome. This is the idea. Paul says we greet you. And then lastly, he wraps up with this beautiful doxology, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all, amen. And so Paul prays this blessing over them. And I'd love to just say, uh, I read that and that was it, right? Close the book, we're done. But here's what I was troubled by. Uh, Verse 11, he he starts this by saying, uh, become complete. He begins this close by saying, become complete, and then he gives the blessing. He he gives us a little exhortation. Now, why couldn't he just say, uh, be awesome, or you be you, or you do, you're okay, I'm okay, we're all okay. Here's a blessing. But instead, Paul says, become complete. The word could also be translated in your Bible as maybe mature or maybe even perfect. And so he's now tacked on completion, maturity, perfection and tied it to, if you desire to be blessed, you need to grow up. And this is hard, right? He's encouraging them to do the right thing, to actually listen to the Spirit, and then know what the right thing is to do, and then go out and do it. And yet, in their society in Corinth, things were mixed up. Right and wrong, is it good, is it bad, I don't know. And this, this, by the way, sounds familiar if you go back to Isaiah chapter. Five, in the nation of Israel, this is the very spot they were in when God, through the pen of Isaiah, says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. But in that day, they'd gotten right and wrong switched up. They'd gotten good and bad all mixed up. And by the way, this is exactly where we're living. (laughs) We're good and bad is confused for bad, or bad is confused for good, when up is down. I don't even know what bathroom to go to at this point. I mean, the the, base, the most basic of things are getting confused, and people are getting washed out in the midst of it all. There, there are real people being confused in this spot, you see. And so we we can't just simply shake our fists and say it's not right. We have to be willing to step in and say, this spirit that exists is what's not right. The spirit of the enemy that wants to confuse our children, that wants to confuse us as a society, this is what's not right. Now, there are many that want to say, okay, we, we need to get back to good old-fashioned family values. That's what we need, the way it used to be. Well, well here's the problem with family values. It depends on the family. <laughs> Different families have different values, you see. And so values become subjective when we leave it up to family values. It's it's like me with my truck out here. I've decided I want to go trade it in. I take it to the dealership. I put my value up here, but then they put the value down here. So whose value is right? Is it mine or is it theirs? It's subjective. It depends on the person on the other end. And so we can't simply depend on values. What we have to do is go back to God's law psalm chapter 19 verse 7 says this the law of the lord is perfect converting the soul the testimony of the lord is sure making wise the simple the statutes of the lord are right rejoicing the heart the commandment of the lord is pure enlightening the eyes we we have to go back to god's word where perfection where value actually resides this is the standard not my value system But then as I considered the standard and what completion looks like, so we're saying then we have to be perfect. In fact, uh, this is exactly what the law states. The law states you have to live by it completely. And and for those that go, look, I'm a New Testament Christian, that's why I don't read the Old Testament, it's so confusing, I just go by what Jesus says. I'm just Jesus all the time. I'm only going to listen to him, none of that Old Testament stuff. In fact, I'll live by the Sermon on the Mount. And every time I hear somebody say something like that, I wonder, have you actually read the Sermon on the Mount? Because what Jesus said is way harder than living out the Old Testament. In fact, what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 48, is this, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. (laughs) That's the standard. It's perfection. If I'm going to accomplish it on my own. This is why not a single one of us in this room can do it. 613 commands in the Old Testament, we can't keep the top 10 list in our flesh. We don't have the ability, which makes us that much more thankful for our Savior. Thank God that he sent his son. Thank God as we celebrate this Christmas season that he poured himself into flesh to be watched over by a couple teenagers in a manger so that He would, 30 some odd years later, give His life for us so that we could have eternal life. Because I can't do this on my own. I don't have the ability to do this in my flesh. I can't muster up enough strength to be able to make this happen. What Paul communicates to the Colossians again in chapter 1 verse 27 is this, To them, God willed to make known What are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That as I accept Christ in me, what he does is actually matures me, not from the outside in, like the law tried to do, but from the inside out. His law becomes a part of my life. It becomes a part of my being. In Jeremiah, in his day, uh, chapter thirty. One verse 33 he says here and I will make uh, the house of Israel after those days says the Lord I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people in the new covenant he is going to give us his law on our hearts write it on the tablet of our hearts and so now the law can be done from the inside out not the outside in and this is really where we wind up as we question ourselves right before communion, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. The question is, am I living by the law? Or am I living allowing Him to live through me? Because the law says if you do this, you'll live. But the Spirit says if you live this, you'll do. It'll become a natural outpouring of letting Him change us from the inside out as we become in communion, in community, koinonia with the Holy Spirit. And we're getting ready to take communion here in just a few minutes, praise the Lord. And so Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is unchanging, unmoving, stable, reliable, and that we have truth in our very hands and in our midst. Lord, thank you that as we have the opportunity to give our lives up, that the reality is we can now live in and through You. Thank You, Lord, that we have this ability to accept the free gift of salvation. And yet the truth is the gift, while it is free in the sense that I, I cannot do anything in my own power to be able to, to make this happen, it's only by Your grace, but that it, it cost me my life. Lord, help us to realize that as we turn over our lives, which are only temporary anyway, not, no one in this room can live eternally in this flesh. It's not possible. There, there are funeral homes open all over the area that prove it, that, that we cannot live eternally outside of You. And so, Lord, help us to give up the thing that we cannot hang on to and accept the gift that is for all of eternity. Lord, thank You for that promise. Thank You for the opportunity to just be in communion with You. Lord, help us have a heart that is able to examine today, to to truly examine, Holy Spirit, bring these things up in my heart that I need to be working on. Bring these things to the surface that need to be scraped off, Lord. Examine me from the inside so that I can become more mature, more complete. Be made more perfect so that I can be presented before You someday, Lord. Help that be our prayer as we reflect. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.